Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith in your health care with CMF Curo. Today, all three of us co-hosts will be heard across the EWT. And Global Catholic Radio Network as we discuss the challenges of the practice of obstetrics in a post-Dobbs world. Uh, there's a lot of lies out there. Let's lay it out there clearly. And Chris will serve as our expert while Andrew and I will help dig into this important subject. So yeah, I, I've gotten a lot of comments, feedbacks, questions from even medical people, but definitely lay folks too. How do we combat this false narrative about, oh, so many women are going to die after Dobbs, and how are you going to care for miscarriages? And I'm like, wait a minute, this is, you're not actually falling for that. But a lot of people, I think, are unprepared to discuss it. Yeah. I'll, Chris, I'll admit, I was really unprepared. I, I Of all of the post-Roe v. Wade stuff that I saw coming, when I first started hearing this, I was completely caught flat-footed. I, I didn't see that. So what did you think was going to be coming? Oh, I thought it was going to be more, you know, illegal, back-alley abortions, okay. women are going to die. Kind of the usual arguments that we've heard for the last 50 years. Until this decision, I don't know about you guys, I don't think I've ever heard these arguments before. Yeah, no, it, it's something that was totally novel. And, and that's one of the things that I think was so off-putting because people are like, wait, how, how are ladies going to die? Mm. You know, this is not just the back-alley abortion argument. It's almost like there was a meeting somewhere and someone said, yes. here's some new speaking points. Exactly. Let's use these. Yeah. Uh, well, it's interesting. Just yesterday from the Indiana Family Institute, where you're in Indiana, of course, uh, those were the two big things they said, the lies about ectopic pregnancy being related to abortion, and then the second one about the fact that women are going to die if abortion isn't available. I'm thinking less mm. people and less future women are going to die. You know, yeah. and, you know, a note to our listeners, I, I don't feel bad if either you're not certain what we're talking about or that you thought these things might be true because it's not just the fringe. I mean, some of my own family members asked me about this and sort of a, yeah, but what about these women that are going to die from ectopic pregnancies? So it's not a fringe. It's pretty out there. And yeah. if, if you've heard these things and wondered about uh, their sincerity or their correctness, don't feel bad. We're going to clarify. And so, if, if you're surprised also that you haven't seen data about all these deaths since the <laughs> don't Supreme be Court has come there. down. Yeah. So, so before we dive into uh, what's true about ectopic pregnancy. We hear pregnancy, about every monkeypox case. Yeah. But what about all these yeah. guys? <laughs> Monkey, that was another episode, Andrew. Get over it. <laughs> Sorry, okay. still on the pot. <laughs> so in our state of Indiana was the first state to hold a special session of its legislature to pass a law to restrict abortion. Our own Andrew Mullally testified twice, right, mm. yep. during a session um, in late July and early August. So, Andrew, what was it like during that session? It was it was intense. It was really cool. I think a lot of people anticipated this after they knew the case was coming. Uh, the session was pre-scheduled for tax uh, purposes. And so it was kind of, I, I think a lot of people wanted to have a session right after the case would be sure. solved, but not clearly say, hey, this is what we're going out there to do. And so I think all, all of the, the representatives and senators and stuff uh, were pretty stressed out. A lot of times you'll see them kind of more mingling with people and even many of the normal channels of communication with some of the lobbyists that I've talked to, like the Right to Life folks or the Catholic Conference folks, they were totally shut off, not talking to anybody. Wow. Um, because they, I, I think all the elected representatives were really stressed about this. You know, I've, I've, I would have to say in my career, some of the worst arguments I've heard have been in and among pro-life people with each other. Yes. Did you get a sense of that sort of standing in a circle, somebody shooting at each other at that conference? There, I think there were a lot of people who were unprepared to stand up as a pro-life elected official. It was easy to run that way when you actually couldn't do a whole lot. <laughs> so even though they filled out the surveys, you mentioned to the, this to me talking, the surveys of what they believed about abortion yeah. and law, and yet when it, it came down to it, they didn't believe that. It's so disappointing because uh, at least here in Indiana, I think many states, they have those surveys where they ask in-depth questions. Yes especially about what exceptions do you think there should be to anti-abortion laws? And people, 
know how they have to fill it out to get the endorsement. And when it came down time to vote, many people did not vote that way, which uh, I think it puts the right to life in a precarious position. How do you penalize these people who they've carried some water, but when it came down to it, they they didn't show up. So what what was that like? What was the mood of that like? Because it seems like it would be a no-brainer. It would be sort of a big celebration. You've got a room full of people that purportedly agree with one another, but I'm sure that wasn't exactly it. Help listeners understand what that was like. Yeah, it was it was crazy. You had a whole lot of people who wanted to talk <laughs> and uh, not a lot of time. There were physicians there, huh? <laughs> there were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there were. And, you know, really the, the big, I guess the big show was the protest. And there was a uh, kind of dueling protests on separate days. The first day were the pro-abortion folks mm-hmm. and the second day were the pro-life folks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very interesting. The pro-abortion folks, I mean, uh, a lot of shouting, a lot of, uh, you know, there's different even among the pro-life community, different groups of pro-life folks. Some folks like interacting with the pro-abortion folks. Yeah. Uh, and so there was definitely up-in-your-face type things that, well, with, you know, Within that pro-life segment, Help listeners understand, how could people disagree? What were the opposing arguments within the pro-life contingency? I I think a lot of people don't approach the pro-life cause. I'm learning this now afterwards Mm -hmm. because I think, at least for me, I made a lot of assumptions that people were pro-life because they knew it was a human life. They wanted to protect it. Right. I think people approach it not all from a philosophical point. Mm -hmm. And so when it came down to... You know, you hear about these really terrible situations ladies are put in and are found themselves in. They're like, gee whiz, can, can we take away their ability to get an abortion? And a lot of the elected folks got cold feet. Uh, yeah. There's, there's definitely some, though, that stood strong. And there, there's one in particular who, at least in our state, the Republican Party, that caucus is the, the pro-life half. And there was one guy who left the Republicans after 30 years because they didn't want him to introduce an amendment um, getting rid of the rape and incest exemption. Uh. So he said, I'm going to be an independent because I think we got to have a vote on this. Mm. And that's that's when you got to see the people who what got cold vote? feet. It was, it was close. I think in our state you needed 50 senators. And um, he said the day before going individually, he had 26 votes, which is what he needed. But I think when it came down to it, there were 18 people who, who voted correctly and several people who abstained and several people who flipped. Oh. So, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I think, behind-the-scenes arguments. And so for the record, Indiana's law ended up with an exception for rape, for incest, and... And for health of the mother, and unfortunately also for fetal anomalies. Which is one of the things you specifically testified on. Now, when you testified, did you testify to a committee or to the entire chamber? Uh, It'd be to the committee. There's a committee of about uh, 10 folks in each chamber, and they were really the the head of the chamber, the speaker, Mm -hmm. or the president, and then the committee that they chair. Mm. Wow. So what's the bottom line lesson for uh, our listeners about what's going on in legislatures now? Well, I would say the biggest thing is you got to show up. I mean, I know there were so many people who wanted to talk who didn't have the opportunity to, so many more people who feel that way and weren't able to come. But uh, at least on those days, I was one of two pro-life docs who was able to speak. There was 20-some, you know, these are paid academic people. You get the day off. They're lobbyists for the pro-abortion folks. Um, But it's hard to get pro-life people out there. So I think when you have the opportunity, you got to try and show up and explain. There's a lot of people who feel this way. We just all have day jobs. Well, great point. Thank you for doing that. Well, I think it's time to move on to our medical trivia question of the day. And the category is methotrexate, because Chris will be talking about, at least briefly, the use of this chemotherapy and immune-suppressing drug in the treatment of some ectopic pregnancies. But among other things, methotrexate blocks the formation of the building blocks of DNA, and therefore cells can't make new cells because they can't make more DNA. So for a brief foray into my realm of dermatology, what is the most common skin disease (laughs) treated with methotrexate? We'll have that answer for you toward the end of the show. And right after this break, we'll be back with Chris on what is the truth post-Dobbs about obstetric care of ectopic pregnancies and other questions. 
We're back now with Chris serving as our resident expert with all things obstetrics. Chris, the idea for this episode started with a question we got a few months ago from a listener, Alexandra, who writes that she would like to hear how, number one, a post-Dobbs world affects medical practice in emergent situations, and she'd first like to know the philosophy behind indirect and direct abortion. She said she'd love to hear on this episode about this so she can provide answers to her friends and family who are both Catholic and not Catholic. Yeah, great question on a great topic, I guess we could say. And so many times, as we've encountered through the years on this show, it boils down to vocabulary, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And I think in this particular case, it's the great example of what happens when medical terminology and sort of popular slash maybe political terminology crash into each other. Sure. Uh, and so we should probably spend a couple of minutes and just go through some of the, you know, the relevant terms. Uh, one of the challenges is, and by the way, the three of us don't have the power to change the medical terms. You can write whatever you like, but it's going to get changed based on software and electronic billing information to the standard term. That, and that's driven by the AMA who makes the, the codes. codes. Yeah. yeah. It's a numeric system, and you type in the number. You don't get to change what the words are. Yeah. Right. And these uh, codes are not new. I mean, they were no. around when we were in medical school, Chris. Which, by definition, means they were not new. <laughs> not new. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, let's look at some of those. So, the word abortion, uh, for many of our listeners, conjures up an unpleasant sort of topic. But it's used medically often to describe a lost pregnancy, right? not a verb of doing a procedure on woman. So either intentional or non-intentional. Right. It's a, it's a loss. And so the terms that we use regularly are threatened abortion, uh, missed abortion, and inevitable abortion. And in those three cases, everywhere I use the word abortion, most of us would substitute the word miscarriage. Mm -hmm. Well, now it makes much more sense. A threatened miscarriage, an inevitable miscarriage, uh, and a missed miscarriage. But medically, the word is abortion, as distasteful uh, as that is to most of us. Well, so, it's like those of us who watch uh, space sci-fi shows, you know, abort the mission, abort, abort, abort. That means to stop something. Sure. So here, the life stops, but in these cases, nobody is intending to do it. Exactly. So if we go through just those three sort of examples, a threatened miscarriage or a threatened abortion, the baby's alive, but the mother's cramping and bleeding, and it, it's felt that could turn into a miscarriage or a loss. So that's a threatened miscarriage. An inevitable miscarriage, the baby still could be alive, there could still be a heartbeat, but it may be, as we say in medicine, agonal, meaning it's a very, very slow heartbeat, mm. uh, or the baby may literally be in the process of dying. Um, so that it's inevitable. It isn't for debate. That it is either a loss in front of you or it's about to be a loss. And then the last one is a missed miscarriage or missed abortion. And in that case, the baby has died, but it remains inside the uterus. So those three are really critical as we finish this discussion to understand what people are talking about. And they all represent something that the woman has experienced or is experiencing, not something that's being done to her, not, not a verb, not an abortion being performed at Planned Parenthood. And that word is what makes it so confusing. So is that why we've got so many people out there saying now doctors won't be able to treat ectopic pregnancies? Well, I suspect in this conversation we'll talk why people would be saying that a great deal. Um, I don't know why they would be saying that. It's blatantly incorrect. Um, there, there is nothing about a spontaneous abortion or a missed miscarriage that has anything to do with any of these laws that Andrew was testifying about or any of the so-called trigger laws that we've heard. Uh, these are old terms, and sadly, these conditions are as old as humanity. So some other terms you've got here that we need to understand is direct versus indirect abortion. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, set of phrases. I'll have to admit, I don't use that in my practice, and I really hadn't heard that phrase. Have you encountered that before? Uh, until this listener mentioned it, I hadn't really heard it much. I, I really haven't. I think it's where the – so maybe this is my thought, is that uh, – philosophers are trying to talk about abortion and intentionality of the act. Mm -hmm. um, I know we're going to talk about the principle of double effect, but the, the idea of an indirect abortion is not a medical term. Direct abortion, I mean, that makes sense, but we just call that abortion. Right, 
You Indirect know. doesn't fit. Yeah, maybe it's the collision of medical terms and philosophical terms. Yeah. Uh, and it, it gets messy. But the only time a physician would act, if you will, in these situations that I described, would be when the baby has died or the baby is dying or, and the mother is hemorrhaging to death. Um, and so forever we have intervened in those circumstances. And absolutely nothing about any of the laws that have either already passed or are being proposed would in any way prevent a provider from acting appropriately in those conditions. And to suggest that any, that they would is either someone is very misinformed or someone is trying to be very misleading or maybe a combination of the two. So what should we know about the principle of double effect? What should our listeners know? Well, I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? It's not an easy, it's not an easy concept. And some people will think of it as a, as a bioethical loophole, but, but it's really not. And I think the simplest way to think of it is um, you have something that I need to treat, and I'm going to treat the something. But as a result of treating the something, there is going to be another effect that I neither desire nor intend, but that's unavoidable. So one of my favorite examples of that um, is a pregnant woman who has cervical cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only way to treat her is to give her radiation therapy. Uh, but in the process of giving her radiation therapy, in all likelihood, the baby will die. So from an ethical standpoint, if I need to do that or if I'm a patient and I need to decide if that's acceptable to have done to me, I'm really on good moral standing. The, the principal thing is to treat the disease. The sad, the unintentional, the undesired double effect is that the child's life may be lost. This isn't new. In fact, listeners probably know of St. Gianna, yeah, right? right. She's, right. A, she's a really famous example where she said, nope, I understand that ethically I could do that, uh, but I'm choosing not to do that. And it cost her uh, her life, right. but she would have been okay not to do that. Uh, recently, just maybe last year, I had a, a wonderful patient that I met at about 30 weeks of pregnancy she had a massive cervical cancer. Mm. Um, and the only way to treat her was to give her radiation therapy. And she was bleeding at the time oh. and facing the risk of bleeding to death. And she made the conscious decision, I'm going to forego treatment for a few weeks. I'm going to try to just postpone it until my baby's a little older. And then let's deliver my baby at 34 weeks. And then I'll, I'll get treatment after that. Wow. But, and, you know, that was well within, you know, sound moral judgment to do yes. that. Uh, rather heroic of her. Uh, sadly, she, she died shortly after that and her child survived. Oh. Man, that's incredible. Yeah. And I, I think maybe one other thing just with the principle of double effect for maybe our non-Catholic listeners. Mm. Catholics, one of the things that we're really into is act-based moral reasoning. Mm. So it's less about the the outcome, but more about what your actual action is. So this is different than the ends justify the means, mm. where we're not allowed mm. to do anything with a good intention. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is you're allowed to do licit acts with a clear intention, knowing that there might be a secondary side effect. So for I, I know talking to a lot of secular medical folks, mm -hmm. they, they're like, well, what gives the patient the better outcome percentages? And I say, Catholics don't look at the outcome percentages first. That's a secondary <laughs> consideration. Mm -hmm. First, yeah. I can't do something wrong, even if it's going to likely have a better outcome percentage. Right. Very practical example. Uh, a, a few of my colleagues have been known to tell some of my would-be patients, oh, yeah, nice guy, but he can't do a hysterectomy on you because he's a Catholic, and that would be sterilizing you. You know, to which we have to use, you know, the example you gave there and have to say, no, I'm treating a diseased organ. Yes. Unfortunately, it will leave you without the ability to conceive. But my reason going in is not to sterilize Correct. you. The, the ends don't justify the means. I'm treating a disease state. Um, so if you hear those things coming up, listeners, don't be swayed. Don't be tricked. Yeah. I, Chris, I guess kind of as, as we get into some of these maybe myth-busting type <laughs> things, for what condition is abortion the standard of care? Uh, that's easy. There's not one. Uh, there's not one. Um, now, the standard of care, you know, for our, our legal colleagues listening, generally is thought of as, you know, what similar people in similar circumstances would do with similar available resources. Uh, but there's really no condition for which an abortion is the standard of care. 
I think listeners might be surprised to learn that, you know, in the obstetrical world, in a common way, we make a decision to intervene, um, putting the baby at risk for the mother's sake. You know, a common example is severe preeclampsia, or our older listeners will call it toxemia. Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll see a patient who's 24 weeks pregnant, and she is so ill, I'm afraid she's going to die. And the only way I can treat her is deliver the baby. So I would recommend to her, we need to deliver your child because if you die, your child dies and you're very, very sick. Now, a 24-week child may not survive, but it may. But we may postpone it to 24 and a half weeks or or 25 weeks. But in the end, we're having to treat the mother in a way that she needs to be treated, even though it may put the baby at risk. This isn't new. It's not academic. This has been around since the beginning of medical practice. Obstetricians have been doing this forever. (laughs) For a long time. the, The way you describe it is perfect. I mean, this is just rational. You've got two patients and you're balancing the risks and the necessities of treatment with both the patients. Mm. There's never these ultimatums where, you know, that was one of the the things that, you know, was so infuriating to me um, to hear some of the pro-abortion people say is like, well, we're never going to be able to do these medical abortions to save the life of the mother. And I'm like, that's a debate in the pro-life community too, the whole life of the mother thing. I'm like, it doesn't really exist. Correct. You know, there's never a time when abortion is the cure. Well, let me be the devil's advocate <laughs> because I'm not in your field. So delivering a baby early when it's unlikely to live sounds to me like an indirect abortion. Mm. No. How is it not? Well, we wouldn't do that before the baby had a chance to survive. Okay, so there wouldn't be that delivery at like 20 weeks. No, at least not not with me and not with us and people that think like us. Now, that would be Andrew's sort of example where I would say an, a wrong-thinking provider would say, look, you have preeclampsia. Now, side note, you can't get preeclampsia that early. It doesn't right. happen until you're about 24 weeks. But oh, if we okay. use that example. But, you know, maybe the mother could have cancer. Uh, and in that case, you would have to treat the cancer. Right. But here you're directly delivering the baby. Exactly. Early. You know, an abortion, by definition, is designed to destroy the baby. That's what an abortion as a verb is, as a procedure, as opposed to giving a patient with cancer radiation therapy, the goal of the radiation therapy, not to destroy the baby, destroy the disease. You know, it's it's not a subtle difference. Those are radical differences. And Chris, you have, when you're caring for these really early gestation, second trimester folks, you've got percentages almost to the day. If we can get them to this day, what percent survive? Exactly. Can we buy two more days? Yeah. You know? And you can present that to the parents and they can make an informed decision about what they believe is best for them and, and their values and their child. So how are ectopic pregnancies treated? And maybe explain in detail, you know, where do these little babies start to form? Well, we should probably go back and do another vocabulary lesson, right? It gets complicated. So ectopic pregnancy just means a pregnancy that's outside of the womb or outside of the uterus. Um, The most common example of an ectopic pregnancy is a tubal pregnancy. But to say tubal pregnancy is not quite as formal. But generally, whenever we say ectopic pregnancy, we mean a tubal ectopic pregnancy. That's another one of the code things, it right? Is. <laughs> yeah. The code is But they ectopic. can be elsewhere. They can. There are some brilliant, bizarre examples of pregnancies being implanted on the liver or pregnancy implanted on the intestines. They're just so incredibly rare okay. that you can say ectopic and everybody knows it's that you mean tube. it's in the tube. Got it. So, you know, fertilization happens. Despite our friends at ACOG uh, suggesting otherwise, the, the sperm and the egg meet in the very end of the fallopian tube. And then over about 10 days, the embryo, the baby, has to travel down the fallopian tube and then land inside the uterus. With an ectopic or tubal pregnancy, that embryo gets stuck in its journey towards the uterus. And so it, it gets stuck, it stops moving, but it keeps growing. And growing in this case means the trophoblastic tissue, or what will be the placenta, invades the wall of the tube just like it invades the wall or the lining of the uterus in the normal setting. Mm -hmm. Well, the tube is a tiny, delicate, thin little structure, and that tissue invading the tube causes the tube to rupture. Uh, The tube is very, very vascular. A lot of blood supply goes to the tube. So if that tube ruptures, the mother begins hemorrhaging and, and can die very quickly. 
So that's an ectopic pregnancy. So, and that can never come to term. No, in that it location. cannot. By definition, that child is not going to make it uh, really beyond a few days. No ectopics could come to term. No, no, not at all. It's impossible. There are uh, there is a phrase if listeners look it up called a corneal pregnancy, where the 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 pregnancy lands, if you will at the junction between tube and uterus. Oh, yes. It's sort of halfway in the uterus, halfway yeah. out. There are cases where those have continued, uh, but they are usually very, very serious, fortunately very, very rare, because the entire uterus portion of the tube can explode uh, and rapid blood loss you know, very severely. Yes. So that's an ectopic tubal pregnancy. And so, you know, that obviously the way you're describing it, it's clear why it's so dangerous. Tell us how these are treated. Yeah, so the mainstay of therapy is it, it has to be removed because by the time it's diagnosed, for the most part, the tube is already severely damaged. Um, so it, it requires removing the segment of the tube that's ruptured. That's also the segment of the tube uh, that contains the pregnancy. So if you think of a, of a segment of a garden hose where a tennis ball got stuck in the hose. You have to cut the hose <laughs> on one side of the tennis ball, cut it on the other side, remove that segment. That stops the bleeding and treats the emergency. Okay. But they're not all treated that way, are they? Well, there are a few exceptions to that. There are times where the ectopic is in the very, very end of the tube, and we can actually pluck that tissue out, if you will, and treat the ectopic pregnancy and save the tube. Unfortunately, we don't get to do that very often. Um, but surgical treatment, cutting that section of the tube or the entire tube out, by far the most common treatment. Now, years and years ago, a drug that you referenced earlier mm -hmm. called methyltrexate um, was found to be successful in treating some ectopic pregnancies. And there's a whole list of things that makes methotrexate more likely to work. If it's very, very early, if, if the pregnancy itself is very, very small, if it hasn't yet completely ruptured, some things like that can predict whether the methotrexate is going to be successful or not. But it involves giving the woman an injection of a medication one time and then tracking the hormone levels to see if they begin to rapidly fall. If they do, sometimes surgery can be avoided. So first, let's go back to that example where you said the ectopic pregnancy could be at the end of the tube and you pluck it out. How do you know it's dead, the baby's dead when you do that? Yeah, good question. Uh, very often, I would say the most common finding is we look on ultrasound and we see something that's outside of the uterus. We can't identify that it's an embryo, uh, but it's just something there. So by reasoning, the hormone level is a certain level mm -hmm. that we know we should be able to see it if it's in the uterus. We don't see it in the uterus, and we see something outside of the uterus. We can rightly say that's an ectopic pregnancy. Right. Sometimes we can actually see uh, a fetal heartbeat outside of the uterus in a cystic kind of mass. I would say that's less common, but it's not unheard of. Many, many times those pregnancies will stop developing pretty early. Yes. Right. And during this time, you're probably tracking the HCG as well, right? Yes. In the old days, like when I was in medical school, we would see these patients in the emergency room, the tube had already ruptured, and their blood pressure was dropping, and they were dying. Yeah. Um, but today in America, a woman should not die of an ectopic pregnancy. That's because the pregnancy hormone can be detected so early right. in the blood that we can figure out something is going on and intervene, often before it's ruptured and before she finds herself in a medical crisis. So when you're plucking out a you know, the embryo or the remains at the end of the tube, are you confident that there's no life there anymore? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so then onto the methotrexate question. Tom, do you think we should take a break? This you know is what? That's a, a big one. <laughs> that that is a great time. point. Yeah, you, you're on the end. <laughs> Let's take a break. We'll be back on Dr. Doctor talking about the controversies with methotrexate. All right, and we are back with Dr. Doctor today talking to our resident expert. Didn't even have to travel. No. Chris Stroud. Uh, we're talking about all of the misinformation after Dobbs as well as some of the nuances of treatment, gynecologic and obstetrical treatment of these miscarriages. And mm -hmm. right now we're talking about ectopic pregnancies. Yeah. I hinted that there's some controversy surrounding methotrexate. Tell us about that, Chris. Yeah. You know, in medicine, it's, it's more of our code language. When we say something is controversial, it's a nice way to say we disagree, you know, <laughs> that experts disagree. 
Um, so using methotrexate, the, the intent of the medication is to um, stop pregnancy tissue from continuing. Uh, a more honest way to say that is to say it's to destroy the pregnancy. Now, um, bioethicists will disagree. If, if the baby is already dead, um, but the pregnancy tissue is continuing, then that might be one scenario that someone would choose to use methotrexate. So pregnancy tissue, you're talking about what would become... The placenta. Yes. Correct. Um, but others would say if there's a cardiac, if there's a heartbeat, if there's evidence that there's life in the tube, I'm not going to use methotrexate because directly I'm trying to stop that life. As opposed to if I cut the tube out, I'm treating a diseased tube, my primary desire or effect is to treat the diseased tube. It's a nuance, uh, and people disagree. And, and good people, honest pro-life people, disagree on the use of methotrexate, when it can be used, when it should be used. Personally, I, I'm not a huge fan of methotrexate. I think it has a role, but I think it's a limited role. And from my own conviction, I will not use it if there's cardiac activity that's noted. Uh, but other honest pro-life people will disagree and, and have an argument that it's okay. I'm curious. So just realize we have the ERDs, the Ethical and Religious Directives yeah. for you know Catholic hospitals from the bishops. What does that say about methotrexate? You know, it's strikingly absent. There's not really good direction yet. Uh, like we've talked about embryo adoption before. That's, yes. a, that's an important topic that's missing from the ERDs. Uh, my feeling is at some point it'll catch up and there'll be some good guidance. But as we sit here today, there's really not great guidance. I would say to listeners, if you have a good relationship with your provider, hopefully that you do, and hopefully your provider is an authentic pro-life Catholic, it should be presented as something that's there and that it's controversial and that it's unclear. And they should help you figure out where you stand on that position. And, and really, I think most of the controversy, this might be an example of lack of medical understanding mm. of exactly how this is working. I mean, getting down to, is it working primarily on the trophoblast yes, exactly. or on, you know. But as, as you said off air, I think one of the things that listeners would find very reassuring, none of this is a split second decision. Mm. You're, you're following these patients for mm. days and days and what's the levels and okay, let's get another ultrasound. Sure. And I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think probably most of the time it's pretty clear what the best yeah. thing to and do is. And to be complete, there are some exceptions to that where I'll meet the woman. She is clearly hemorrhaging. Mm -hmm. We do an ultrasound. I can tell that she is bleeding in her abdomen. We don't have days then, but we have time to talk. Um, and any provider that doesn't take the time to talk, you should run to the nearest exit. Um, but there, to your point, there's usually time to think through this. And, and I'm sure you all would agree. I don't tell patients what I think and then say, okay, you tell me what you think. A lot of times I have to try to help you figure out what you think yes. because you've never thought of this before. Right. But even then, in the, in the end, uh, it's, it's the woman and her husband's decision, not ours. And, and for the purposes of our show, all of those treatments we discussed, none of them are abortion. No, they're not abortion at all. And to carry that further, none of the proposed legislative events in any of the states in America that are proposing post-Dobbs legislation would in any way impact the treatment of ectopic pregnancy. Well, let me give you the scenario mm. that our listener Alexandra sent in, and it was from a nurse who said, quote, I work on a small NICU labor and delivery floor. Our trigger laws went into effect immediately after the Dobbs decision. A woman walked in with an ectopic pregnancy. We had to sit on her until the doc could speak with a lawyer. She ruptured oh. her pregnancy, didn't get the procedure done for another nine hours because the doc was working with the lawyer for so long trying to work around the laws and not lose his license. She lost 600 cc's of blood, almost died. She's scared of how often the nurses are going to see things like this and not be able to do a bleeping thing about it. Mm. We were all livid at huddle tonight. Several of my coworkers were in tears. So, Chris, uh, help take apart that story. How yeah. does that make sense? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I mean, I, they should be livid, but their anger should be focused at that physician, um, not at legislation. So if we think back to the pandemic and in the early days of the pandemic, mm -hmm. there were some really pretty bad medical decisions made across the world yes. based on incomplete information, based on fear in many cases. 
This is an example of that. That physician was wrongly informed. If they were getting advice from a hospital administrator, well, it was bad advice. Sounds like it was from Twitter. It does. (laughs) It does. And unfortunately, it's hard to hold Twitter liable because that that was really bad decision-making with incomplete or misleading information. I'm not doubting that it happened at all. Uh, I'm doubting the wherewithal of that physician to understand what was going on. Uh, There was actually a great review by uh, by Ben Shapiro on the Daily Wire Mm -hmm. not too long ago. And, And listeners may recognize Ben Shapiro. I think is the the youngest graduate from Harvard Law School in the history of the law school. He's pretty bright. Uh, And he looked at every one of the proposed state legislative actions. None of them would have caused this scenario. So I'm sure that it happened if this listener uh, observed it happening. I'm also absolutely certain that the law didn't cause that. Misinformation caused it. Well, and and to be fair, too, I mean, when I hear that story, I think there's some doubt in my mind because, you know, obstetricians, you can think of your average obstetrician or ER doc or anybody, uh, nobody actually thinks that's abortion. I don't know anybody who is a practicing physician who is confused here. And to suggest that it is, is really very ill-informed or more likely attempting to mislead. Yes. So uh, I think ACOG has uh, said, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has said that more women are going to die now because they won't have access to abortion. Yeah. What's their basis for saying that? Uh, well, I mean, frankly, their basis for saying it is they're very pro-abortion. Uh, and that's not my opinion. You can look it up. Yes. They're very, very pro-abortion. Whenever I hear that, I wonder, do they mean um, the idea that women are going to have illegal abortions by poorly trained you know, people, mm-hmm. uh, as we saw in years before uh, Roe v. Wade, or do they mean abortion is the treatment for something, the absence of which is going to cause death? I don't know what they mean there. I think they're either ill-informed or trying to mislead, unfortunately, probably the latter. But there is no example um, that anyone of reason has proposed where the absence of abortion is going to cause that woman's death. I would challenge anybody to think of an example of that. Very, very good. And it's always always been odd that an organization that is meant to help women bring babies into the world would be against doing that. It just, it, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, I had a chance to be a guest on a bioethical podcast not too long ago, and a bioethicist was quizzing me on why would ACOG come out with these language directives that they've come out with. Um, and it's, it's mind-boggling. It's impossible to understand. But it's part of the culture that says, if you're not pro-abortion, you're not pro-woman, ACOG is about being pro-women, therefore it's pro-abortion. Faulty logic, but very prevalent. Chris, the the other thing that I've seen, we talked a lot about ectopics. Let's talk about miscarriages a little more. We Mm. went over the definitions. There is that put out as well that now OBs will not be able to care for miscarriage uh, patients and more people will die, et cetera. Tell us about the treatment of miscarriages and how that's not true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in reverse order, that's absolutely false. That's blatantly false. There is no support for that at all. But again, remember to our definitions, when we say miscarriage, the babies died. Yeah. So how could an abortion law have anything to do with treating a baby that's died? <laughs> um, that doesn't make sense. And if, if a listener will just yeah, <laughs> sort of think through it, that doesn't make sense at all. You know, the treatment for a miscarriage is either surgical or medical or both. So by surgical, it's an old-fashioned DNC, or sometimes we call it a suction DNC, where a device is put inside the uterus, suction is generated, and it removes all of the tissue. That is to say, the deceased baby. It's all removed. Um, Nothing proposed in any of these bills would change that that's done. It couldn't. It'd be impossible. Uh, Sometimes we do use a medication called Cytotec, or Mifepristol, it's a mouthful, um, to medically treat a miscarriage in an effort to avoid having to do the surgical Mm -hmm. DNC. Uh, it gets confusing because that is part of the yes. medical abortions, RU486. But we're using it to treat a condition where the baby has already died. The same is true with the DNC, which is also the procedure used to do an abortion. That's where this gets so confusing. Uh, but again, terminology, you know, words matter as we tell our kids. When we say miscarriage or spontaneous uh, or missed abortion, we mean the baby has died. 
It's so frustrating that it, it would seem to me that people are intentionally trying to muddy the water because the people who are kind of caught in the crossfire are these ladies who are going through probably the worst day of their life Absolutely. right now. And they're like, am I allowed to do this? Is this ethical? But really, I would say from, from my perspective, everybody in medicine knows exactly what's going on. And uh, it's, it's really just an intentional misinformation campaign to promote abortion. Yeah. It, and in, in fairness, it's a brilliant strategy because it causes a lot of angst, a lot of a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration, a lot of questions. And I think that was the intent. Uh, but the reality is, and listeners, you need to spread the news, it, it really is misguided. So back to ACOG, mm. is it becoming less and less relevant? Yeah. You know, I, I have such a huge bias. I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. <laughs> um, I, I suspect that obstetrician gynecologists are probably split like the population is split on the issue of abortion. I, I don't have any data to suggest that. Um, maybe I'd like to think that there were more pro-life OBGYNs than, than those who are not, but I don't truly know that. There is an alternative organization called the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, uh, of which I'm a member, and I know that organization is growing very, very rapidly. Ah. So maybe that's an indication that, that the tide is turning. Um, but I think most physicians with ACOG most OBGYNs think they have to be a member. Sure. Right. You know, I need access to their materials because their other materials are very, very good. You know, it's part of the club. I need to be in the club. I don't want to be an outsider. So they continue sending them very, very expensive dues. I'm not a member of ACOG and haven't been for many, many years. I would ask listeners, the next time you see your OBGYN, say, are you a member of ACOG? If you are, tell me why. Um, that should generate a fun conversation. And there's some good data out there, just to your point of pro-life OBs, that some 70 or 90 percent of OBs don't perform abortions. Oh, absolutely. Depending on what, where you're getting the data. The overwhelming majority of obstetricians and gynecologists will not themselves perform an abortion. Ah, that's yeah. a good sign. No, they're not always opposed to farming it out to someone else, uh, which is not a good sign. <laughs> no, it's not. So doctors have to become board certified. Mm. How does ACOG play in that role? And if you don't want to be part of ACOG, is there another way to become, quote, board certified? Yeah, again, gosh, I'm a broken record, terminology. So the board, to be a board certified family physician like Andrew or a dermatologist mm -hmm. like you, that has nothing to do with an organization like ACOG. Very good. ACOG is what we call a specialty society. Yes. It's a club. It's a group of people that with choose no to... no golf course. <laughs> no <laughs> golf course. No secret handshake. Yeah. You pay them a lot of dues, no and they give you a lot of information. Now, yeah. they would argue they lobby on your behalf for legislative matters. Now, they don't argue on my behalf, Correct. but they argue on some people's behalf. To be board certified, there's another organization called the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, just like there are all the boards yes. for the other specialties. Those two organizations have nothing to do with each other. So I'm still board certified. I'm just not a member of the ACOG club. So as a BOG instead of ACOG, the board certifying one, are they pro-abortion? Uh, it sure looks that way. Uh, recently, a statement came out from the board, and a similar statement, I think, came out in Family Medicine as mm -hmm. well, saying there should be no obstacles um, at, to certain types of care and that misinformation was an offense that you could be sanctioned for, up to and including loss of your board certification. And guess what? The examples of misinformation, COVID vaccine, abortion, and so-called gender-affirming care. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and it's a big deal if you're not board certified because then it's, it's challenging in many places to work at a hospital at to all. To bill insurance. It can be, it can be career limiting. Um, yeah, and so what is misinformation? So maybe, well, not maybe, a lot of the things we've said on, on our show through the years, ABOG could say I'm spreading misinformation and come after my board. Now, there is a new organization called the National Association of Physicians and Surgeons, I believe, um, that is set up to be an alternative to the usual boards. And so increasingly, hospitals are recognizing that oh, they are. as board certification. So it would give physicians like the three at this table a chance to remain board certified, but not have to participate in things that we uh, that our conscience won't allow. And, and even on the medical side of thing, outside of ethical issues, 
people are, are most providers and physicians are tired of board certification because mm. it's, at least in family medicine, it's a money scheme for that organization. Yes. And uh, and that's the general culture. What, what I'm seeing is that in my career, we're not going to be board certified because it's kind of a joke. Well, we had a, an episode. It may have been three or four years ago. Yes. Listeners have to dig and see where uh, our guest was talking about there is no objective data that says because I'm board certified, I'm better, I'm better more skilled, safer. It just means I, I'm part of the club. Yeah, you're paying the money <laughs> like we all are. Right. <laughs> so a quick question. Will this affect uh, in vitro fertilization uh, people that do that, which is immoral, but they have extra – Embryos. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. So um, often uh, when in vitro fertilization is done, the woman ends up pregnant with more than one child. Right. Maybe three, maybe four, maybe six uh, embryos divided and worked. Right. So if they put two in and each of them twin, well, now you do the math. Right. You have four babies inside the uterus. Um, the physicians would argue the chance of all four of them making it to a safe gestational age is very, very low. She might end up with 23-week babies all in the intensive care unit. So they made the proposition many years ago, let's selectively eliminate um, two of them to reduce it from four down to two. That's called selective reduction. That's an abortion. Correct. Um, and so I, sitting here today, I don't know how the state trigger laws would affect their ability to do selective reductions. I'd like to think they would make it uh, impossible, but I really don't know. I, I know for at least the Indiana law, there's a line item that says this does not affect IVF care at all. Interesting. Yeah. So that was uh, that was something that was a big debate before the session <laughs> went in. And so they put it in there to say this is not applicable. But I think it shows also where there's not the 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 moral strength for a lot of the legislators to say, we know this is wrong. These are the, the fallouts. Right. You know, they say, we don't really want to fight with all the IVF people. We don't want to fight with the, the people who suffered rape or incest. Right. So even though we know that abortion is wrong, we just don't want to pick those fights. Yeah. Chris, last 30 seconds. Mm. What do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, you know, fear is the enemy. We don't make good decisions based on fear. And so the Prince of Lies is very good at stirring up fear. Um, but but check me if you don't believe me. None of the state legislative uh, proposals would prevent us from treating ectopic pregnancy, prevent us from treating miscarriage, uh, prevent us from treating anything that needs to be treated in an appropriate way uh, to treat a pregnant woman. That's not my opinion. That's the gospel. Look it up. And as St. John Paul the, the Great said, be not afraid. And that's a great way to lead into our last segment, which will follow this brief break here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer to this episode's trivia question. I think one of the most remarkable things, Tom, about this trivia question is this show is dedicated to all things pregnancy, <laughs> yes. and you somehow managed to squeeze in dermatology. Yes. Truly remarkable. Yes, all my dermatology colleagues will be thankful for this. So, what's the most common skin disease for which methotrexate is used, especially through the last 40, 50 years, and that is psoriasis. Mm. So, methotrexate kills conditions where the cells are rapidly dividing, that's rapidly dividing in your skin and psoriasis. Uh, there's better things out there now, but it used to be one of the safest things that mm. worked really well. I've given a lot of it during my career. And Andrew, isn't methotrexate still used in maybe some arthritic conditions? Rheumatoid or is that arthritis. Old? That's, that's right. Still, yeah. yeah. And it's uh, one of the things that I like about it is it's really cheap. Mm. And all the new stuff that works better is super expensive. Super right. expensive. Right. So good point. there's still a lot of it out there. And mm. the longer they use it, the more safe it seems to be sure. in the people with the disease. So our top three takeaways for this episode, starting with you, Chris. Yeah, it's hard to pick. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I think my take-home point for listeners is that nothing has changed. Uh, since the Supreme Court's decision, um, nothing in care has changed. And if a physician is withholding care, like our listener's right. example, shame on them. They're ill-informed. Uh, the honor lies on them to do the right thing, and they're not doing the right thing. Andrew? I, I would say... To, to echo that, there is no medical condition for which abortion is the standard of care treatment. Great point. Um, there's no such thing as an emergency abortion. Nobody needs an abortion to treat something. That is a lie. That's false. It's not true. Well done. And, and number three, based on Andrew's experience and what we've seen around the country is our work in the pro-life movement is not done. It's actually 
increased because mm. people who we thought were going to vote pro-life and said they were going to, when the rubber hit the road, they didn't. So we need to elect people who are going to vote to eliminate abortion. But even more importantly, change people's minds so that abortion is not only you know illegal but unthinkable. Mm. And, and now we're unfettered with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Now we can get out and make those changes. Oh, how, how I long to see that day. But, um, no, this is great information. Our patient, or our listeners have been asking for this. Yeah. We're going to get it out, you know, the week after we did this. So, You know, what is, what is interesting, too, about the case, quickly, is yes. so much anger directed towards the Supreme Court. I mean, even threatening the justices' lives. Right. They're, they're making a legal interpretation based on the Constitution. They're not making a medical interpretation. Right. And so uh, they're, they're not physicians. They're brilliant legal scholars. They decided this is how the law uh, works. Like it or not, it could be changed by the Congress. Uh, all you have to do is go and elect a congressman to vote the way that you want them to vote. The Supreme Court's obsolete as long as the law they pass is constitutional. So thank you, listeners, for being with us for yet another episode <laughs> of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all our old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top where you can search over 280 episodes by topic or guest. And if for some unthinkable reason you'd like to see us as well as hear us, um, (laughs) you can see video versions of a lot of our podcasts, including this one. Uh, So go to YouTube, uh, click on the link in the YouTube, uh, drdoctor.org, and you can see and hear the episodes as well. And last but not least, if you have a question or a great idea for an episode topic, please go to our website, click where it says Submit a Question, and let us know what you think. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, and we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.